you ever had to beg? I don't mean literally, like the poor souls we see on the streets of Edinburgh wrapped in a blanket asking for some spare cash. Rather, I mean, have you ever been placed in a desperate situation where you've had to plead with someone who has the power to help you or to refuse you or even ignore you? And what can make such a situation even more acute is when you're begging on behalf of someone else. I found myself in such a situation many years ago in an airline office in Kano in northern Nigeria. Nita, who we've already met in the pulpit, had been seriously ill for several weeks with various unknown tropical ailments and the doctors had been unable to diagnose what the situation was and advised us to go back home and get some specialist treatment. Armed with a letter from the doctor describing the symptoms, we presented them to the airline office in order to ask for medical assistance to get Nita on the plane and off again. But to our alarm, the officials on reading the letter said that they couldn't risk carrying her at all. They were afraid that she'd got something like Lassa fever. And so I found myself having to beg with them to relent and to change their minds. There was nothing I could do, nothing I could offer. They alone had the power to say yes or no. I had to beg. And eventually, after much debate and to our enormous relief, they relented and Nita was driven personally as the plane taxied in under the wing of the plane, taken into the plane and eventually in a wheelchair to the Hospital for Tropical Diseases in London. When Jesus, the Son of God, walked our earth, he faced a constant stream of people who, like me, were begging for help, for they knew that he could help where no one else could. And today in our series in Mark's Gospel, Following Jesus, we have two examples of people begging for help. And you'll find that in Mark 7, verses 24 to 37. It will help to have a Bible open in front of you as we look at these incidents together. It's page 1010. There are Bibles in the pews. Do take one and have it open in front of you. And notice in both cases that those begging do so on behalf of others. These two examples. In the first, we have a mother who begs Jesus to drive a demon out of her sick daughter. Verses 24 to 30. In the second, some people bring a deaf and dumb man and beg Jesus to heal him. And in both cases, Jesus responds positively to their appeals though not in the way we might expect. And we can look at the stories, and we will do from that perspective. However, what is important, and we've seen this as we've made our way through Mark's Gospel, is to try to understand something else. We need to try to understand, among all the thousands of healings that took place by Jesus, why does Mark select these two to record in his Gospel, And why does he place them here in this particular point in his Gospel? 
The key to understanding these miracles lies not just what happened, but where they happened. I receive a lot of promotions of various Christian events. In fact, I think in Charlotte Chapel we probably receive leaflets about every event that's ever taken place in Christendom sometimes with the piles of mail that we get. And of course they're glossy brochures and they always advertise those who are speaking at the events. And nearly always, I've noticed something interesting now, it normally says so-and-so is an international speaker. That means that they've spoken somewhere outside of Britain and, uh, and they're, they're known there. There's nothing wrong with that, but I simply point out to you that Jesus did not have an international ministry. Almost all of the three years of his ministry on earth was confined to a tiny geographical area, the nation of Israel. And in Mark 7, we have a rare excursion beyond the borders of Israel. In fact, the furthest Jesus ever travelled in his three-year ministry to the vicinity, verse 24, of Tyre. Later on he goes to a place called Sidon, up the road, and from there to the region of the Decapolis, the ten towns, on the eastern side of the uh, Lake of Galilee, where he briefly visited, we saw earlier in our series, and healed a, a demoniac in that region. So he's travelling beyond the borders of Israel. But there's something else very interesting uh, we need to recognise, and you can miss it quite easily. If you know the Bible, when the people of Israel finally arrived in the land of Canaan, led by Joshua, the Lord allocated the land to the Israelites, for the Canaanites had spent hundreds of years living ungodly lifestyles. This was God's judgment on them. And, and the Lord allocated all the different parcels of land to different tribes. Very interesting that the area of Tyre and Sidon was allocated in the north to the tribe of Asher. This is in Joshua uh, 19. But, they never fully inherited what God had promised to them. And at the time of Jesus, Tyre and Sidon were two wealthy, independent, trading city-states. Now, going back to the beginning of Mark's Gospel, when Jesus came and began his ministry, he announced the coming of the kingdom. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is the king. He's entering into his kingdom. One that began with Israel to its fullest extent. To this area inhabited largely by Gentiles. And these stories we need to see therefore from that perspective. They're stories that point forward to the day when the kingdom of Jesus is going to extend to the fullest extent of Israel and beyond that to the ends of the earth. You remember that was the commission that Jesus gave to his disciples uh, before the day of Pentecost. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1, verse 8. So, as we look at these two stories together, we need to keep these two perspectives in mind. There's the immediate perspective of the miracles themselves. But beyond that, there are some very important signals here about hope for the whole world. And that affects us, because most of us are not Jews by birth. Were this not the case, if Jesus was simply a Jewish itinerant preacher, we would not be here today, Charlotte Chapel would not be here today, the Church of Jesus Christ would not be here today. Here we have the beginnings of hope and healing for the nations. So, let's look at it from that perspective as well. So, first of all, in verses 24 to 30, what I want to call hope for the nations. If you look at 
Bible in front of you, verse 24, uh, Mark introduces the section by saying, Jesus left that place, went to the vicinity of Tyre. That place is probably his base in Capernaum, on the northern edge of the Lake of Galilee. And so he heads north up the Mediterranean coast. We're not told why he decided to take this trip. Maybe he realised a growing conflict with the religious authorities, the Pharisees and their friends and the increasing alarm on the part of Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, might precipitate his arrest ahead of the divine schedule. Or maybe he and his disciples, whom Matthew tells us in his account accompanied him, maybe he needed some quality time with them to teach them more things away from the pressure of the crowds. Whatever the case, when he arrives in Tyre, he doesn't publicise his arrival. And yet, such was his growing fame that his presence could not be kept secret. And Mark highlights this one person who hears about Jesus and immediately makes for him because she has a desperate need and she wants to beg for his help. Now, as you look at this incident, recognise that almost everything this woman has to offer is against her. Everything counts against her receiving any help from Jesus. Look at the reasons for refusal. In fact, imagine... Uh, that this is a doctor's surgery and you're coming to plead for help from the doctor, all right? And uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great physician. Every factor that is listed is against her. Uh, first of all, her background and culture. We learn she's a Greek. That doesn't mean she was born in Greece. It means she's Greek by culture and religion. The Jews had had this long conflict over the past two centuries with the rising, two or three centuries, with the rising Jewish Hellenistic culture. And there had been intense conflict. You may maybe know the story of the events that took place between the end of the Old Testament and beginning of the New Testament. This Jewish family, the Maccabees, who rose up in revolt against them. And so there was a long history behind this. Uh, where was she born? Well, we learned she was born in Syrian Phoenicia. Uh, the Phoenicians were some of the ancestors of the original Canaanites who had lived in Israel for generations. They were particularly a seafaring people. They were the ancestors of the Philistines. You remember the Philistines who, who constantly fought against King David and King Solomon? And at the time of Jesus, they were again doing really well with their trading policies. In fact, they had two main areas. One in the north in Syria, Syrian Phoenicia, one down on the North African coast in what was called Libyan or Carthaginian Phoenicia. And so again, there was a long history going back centuries, which would prejudice a Jew against such people, a bit like the Palestinians today. The third question need not be asked, it was obvious. She was a woman, and women were second-rate citizens in the ancient world, and not least among Jews, particularly in matters of religion. And finally, a question about the patient who needs help. It's her daughter. It was common Jewish belief that as soon as a baby was born to a Gentile woman, when it uttered its first cry, it became, in God's eyes, unclean. And this child is also, to add to everything else, a female child, not a male child. And all of these are good reasons why Jesus might refuse to help her. One writer comments, In the ancient world, this was a combination of need beneath the dignity of any true rabbi. Nonetheless, this woman comes despite all these contrary factors, she comes and begs Jesus for help for her daughter who is possessed by an evil spirit. That is a malignant spiritual power that's the cause of her problem. And the response of Jesus, the surprising response of Jesus, doesn't at first sight offer much hope to the woman. Now this is a very controversial verse. 
I don't know if we've studied in fellowship groups yet, but when we do, no doubt we'll get all sorts of answers. But this has caused a lot of consternation. Can you imagine? Well, imagine you've never seen this. And imagine this woman comes and begs for help. I guess almost every one of us would expect Jesus to respond wholeheartedly, positively, immediately, and solve her problem. You would not expect Jesus to say what he says here. What does he say? He says, first let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And of course, the Jews prided themselves that they were the children of God. They regarded Gentiles as dogs, as did the Gentiles, the Jews, of course. But it's not the sort of thing, is it, that we'd imagine Jesus saying to a needy woman, alluding to, as it were, you're just one of the dogs. Before we try and work out what he really meant by it, it's, it, it's worth noting that this is another indication of the authenticity of this gospel. The likelihood that Mark the author received it firsthand from an eye or ear witness, probably Peter according to tradition. Any, any good politically correct editor would have expunged this or softened it or made it a bit more palatable to, to modern ears, would, would he not? So why did Jesus say it and what did he mean? There have been many attempts to try and explain it away. People point out that one, one of the interesting things about reading the Bible, as opposed to hearing it read or seeing it on a film like the Jesus film or, or the latest Mel Gibson extravaganza, is one of the things we don't know is what tone of voice the people spoke in. So some people think when Jesus said this, he said it with a kind of twinkle in his eye. He didn't harshly address you, you dog. Nothing for you. And in fact, the word used here for dog here, uh, the Greek word that's translated dog here, is not the word used for the normal dogs in society that were scavenging wild dogs that lived out on the streets. It's actually the word for a little dog, a pet dog. The one that you have around the house that may be sat under the table waiting for straps to fall to the floor. In whatever tone it was said, however, we need to face the challenge head on. It challenges our common perception. You know that Jesus was this person who went around everywhere and to all and sundry he just did whatever they wanted them to do. In fact, as we've seen, Jesus in his ministry had a clearly defined target audience to whom his earthly ministry was totally directed. Uh, Matthew, in his account, in Matthew 15, tells us that the first response of Jesus was this. He says to the woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Matthew 15:24. Uh, and his interesting little book on, on Mark, which is worth reading, Tom Wright comments, this story, therefore, is a sharp reminder to us that Jesus wasn't simply called to go around being helpful to everyone. He has specific and controversial things to do and only a limited time to do them. The people of Israel are the one he's come, ones he's come for, to offer to them the bread of life. The whole context of these chapters is to do with food. don't have time to look at it, but the feeding of the 5,000 will be followed next week by the feeding of the 4,000. And it's all to do with these metaphors, these images of food and bread. The people of Israel are the chosen guests at the banquet. So for Jesus to focus on those outside the invitation list would be to disobey the instructions of the Father who had prepared it in the first place. It would be like tossing bread to pet dogs under the table. Yet look a little more closely. While the words of Jesus do not seem to offer much hope to the woman, they do not exclude all hope. 
For Jesus says that the bread is first offered to the children and leaves therefore a chance for others afterwards. Now the question at this point for this woman and for us as well is, do we walk away in disgust and say, I'm not going to be talked to like that and referred to as a dog in offence? Or will the woman seize on the opportunity and push the door open as it were? And this is what she does. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And a response of faith is rewarded by Jesus. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. Sinclair Ferguson comments, again, a good commentary if you want a good commentary on Mark. Jesus had not closed the door to faith on her part. Rather, he was gently pushing his sh- putting his shoulder to the door to see how firm her faith was. Was it strong enough and real enough to open the door? In fact, it was, and Jesus granted her request. She went home to discover her daughter delivered, just as Jesus had said. But let's look again beyond this to the issue of, beyond the issue of personal faith. You see, it's no accident that this story follows, if you were here last week, This story story follows the great controversy with the Pharisees in chapter 7 about clean and unclean food, where Jesus declared that there is no longer any clean or unclean food, that God regards all foods as the same. Now, here is the beginning of hope that goes beyond that, even more startling and controversial. He is now saying, in actual fact, there is going to be no distinction between people who are regarded as clean the Jews, the children, and those regarded as unclean, the dogs, the Gentiles. That God is going to welcome all people in, even a Greek woman from Syrophoenicia who's appealing on behalf of a demon-possessed daughter. Larry Hurtado, who lectures at New College, also has a book on Mark, and he says this indicates preparation for the future. Jesus' ministry in Israel was a preparation, a basis for a later wider proclamation of the Gospel. What this story is showing is, is what's going to happen eventually. This is the beginning of hope for the Gentiles. Hope for us if we're Gentiles. The Apostle Paul summarised this priority and ordering at the beginning of his letter to the Christians in Rome. He said, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. And as the Jews refuse, so the Gospel in the book of Acts begins to go out to the other nations. Now this morning, whatever nationality you're from, whether you are a man or a woman, the Gospel is good news for you if you will embrace it by faith, if you will come and beg and seek the Saviour's help. Yes, Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, but you remember what he said to his disciples in John 10, he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, them also I must bring in. They must be brought in and welcomed. The disciples of Jesus, therefore, are commanded to go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28. So here in this story, we see the beginning of hope for the nations. And the story which follows continues on the same theme, for Jesus is still in Gentile territory. So look at the second story, which I want to suggest we could describe as healing for the nations in verses 31 through to 37. Uh, The trip described in these verses may have taken a lot longer than we may understand just reading the account here. Some people think that these verses represent about eight months of travel. 
course they had no buses or planes or anything in those days uh, Jesus and his disciples travelled by foot we don't know why he took this particular journey if you look at the map he goes from Tyre then up north to Sidon and then back down to Decapolis uh, William Barclay for the Scots says this is a rather odd way of travelling it's rather like going from Glasgow to Edinburgh by Perth if you can think of that in your own geography certainly true uh, whatever the reason, Mark and Mark alone records this particular incident in which people bring a man who, the, if you look at the NIV heading, is described as a deaf and dumb man or deaf and mute uh, man. Uh, the text is more accurate. It says deaf and could hardly talk. And they bring him to Jesus and beg him to heal him. Now again, I don't know how you read this story. It's a very unusual story. And what Jesus does here, he does nowhere else. Very strange actions. The response of Jesus to this needy man. The first thing to notice is that Jesus takes the man aside, away from the crowd. Verse 33. The healings of Jesus, unlike those of many self-styled healers today, are not done in front of a crowd to impress a large number of people, to entertain an audience been pointed out that deaf people in particular suffer greatly in the crowd in situations where people just tend to shout louder because they think they're stupid and when in fact the reason is they cannot hear so Jesus deals with the man graciously privately, personally as he does with each one of us now of course Jesus could have healed the man instantly or even as with a woman's daughter at a distance and just said fine, no problem, be healed so why does he take these actions these very strange actions well maybe he's just doing what the people asked him to do they said would you come and put your hands on him whatever the actions mean there is no routine formula to be followed what is probable is that what Jesus is doing here is a kind of sign language he's a man who can't hear so Jesus by sign language tells him what he's going to do and then does it so he puts his fingers in the man's ears to indicate that he's about to open them he spits and puts saliva on the man's tongue indicating he will enable the man to speak uh, some point out that in those days people believed that saliva had healing properties but Jesus looks up to heaven from where the healing will come he raises his eyes to heaven and he sighs deeply it's an interesting word used there it's a word used of a deep inward anguish is probably the best word for it the word used if you know the Bible in Romans 8 where it says sometimes we don't know how to pray but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groans that words cannot express same word, the Apostle Paul used the same word in 2 Corinthians 5 where he talks about in this body we groan and long for a new body one writer says it's the sigh of the heart of God for his needy creation and then he utters this one word which is a very strange word eftatha which is not a magic spell word like abracadabra or something like that it means something and Mark tells us it means be opened in Aramaic or possibly Hebrew scholars aren't absolutely sure and the result is instantaneous at this verse 35 the man's ears were open his tongue was loose and he began to speak plainly now again on the one level again look at it on the one level on the one level it's a gracious answer to the begging of these people this man is delivered from his problem he can hear again he can speak clearly and it brings joy and amazement to those who made the request in the first place but, but again, as you look at the story there is a lot more to this than meets the eye especially an eye that is not familiar 
with the Hebrew Scriptures. There are two particular allusions in this story that refer back to the Hebrew Scriptures, that is, our Old Testament, and we need to see it in the light of those. The clue to the first lies in the description of the man's condition. Look at the statement that it says in verse 32. It says, There some people brought to Jesus a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. Those, the words could hardly talk are only one word in the original. And it's a very, very rare word. It's found nowhere else in the New Testament. It refers to some kind of speech impediment. It's found in only one place in the whole Bible, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, in a very significant place. In fact, we already sang about it this morning, which is why I chose that hymn, that chorus, Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return. Uh, if you've got a Bible, just turn back. We're, we're, we're getting there. So we're nearly towards the end. If you're wondering where we're going. Page 719, Isaiah 35. Page 719. And this is you'll see it's headed the joy of the redeemed, Isaiah 35. And it's all about the desert blooming, wilderness blossoming. It's about saying to those who are weak and feeble, be strong, don't fear, your God is coming to you. Uh, and then verse 5, then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then will the lame man leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Now the word mute there is this very unusual and rare word that is found only in Mark chapter 7. Could hardly speak. And the whole of Isaiah 35 is echoed. You need to read it, that background to this particular incident. Not least the joy of the people. The more they keep, Jesus keeps telling to keep quiet, the more they keep speaking. They were overwhelmed. They said, he has done everything well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, when the words he has done everything well also have echoes in the Old Testament, even further back. You remember at the end of Genesis chapter 1, when God had finished creating everything, we read, God saw all that he'd made and it was very good. Everything that Jesus does is absolutely good and perfect. Here in this incident in Mark 7, we see the fulfilment of all the promises of God. The promised redemption. The Redeemer has arrived. He's returned. The restorer of creation has come back. This is hope not just for Israel. This is hope for the whole world. That God will do a new thing. A new creation is underway through the Son of God that will bring healing to the nations. And so what follows in Mark's Gospel, as you read it together consecutively, in the next chapter we find that a blind man, his eyes are restored. And the disciples at last begin to see only faintly who Jesus really is and what the story is really all about, even though they cannot see the cross, let alone beyond the cross. But the day is coming when eyes and ears will be opened, not just physically, but spiritually, as people recognize who Jesus is, even Gentiles. Who's the first person to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God? It is a Gentile centurion standing at the foot of the cross, who says, as he sees Jesus die, surely this man was the Son of God. The King of the Jews had become the Saviour of the world, as Tom Wright tellingly puts it. However, all of this is yet to come. Here are the seeds of hope and healing 
that Mark is telling in his Gospel are about to arrive. And we live in the full fulfilment of all of them. Healing for the nations. Again, Tom Wright comments, it was and is the story, appointed to that great healing that will occur when the secret is out, when Jesus is finally revealed to the whole world and our present stammering praise is turned into full-hearted song. Now, read in this life, it offers us hope on two levels. It offers hope beyond the nation of Israel. Hope for the world. Healing for the nations. But it also offers us personal hope. And so I conclude by asking you the question I began with. And that is this. Have you ever had to beg? Ever found yourself in a situation where you had to plead with someone because no one else could help you? Can I say this morning, if you're a Christian, if you're a true Christian, then the answer must be yes. There must come a time in your life, a point in your experience, where you realise that only Jesus can save you. Nothing, no one else can help. Or if you think, I'll call on Jesus if I get in a real mess, but my life's okay, it's together at the moment. And I'm sure I'm as good as the next person, and when I get to heaven, I'm sure I'll be in the top half that goes up, not down. You never reach this point of seeing that only Jesus can save you and where you beg and plead for his salvation it's not an easy process it wasn't easy for this woman she had to push on the door to get in as it were what so often happens is that pride stands in our way we refuse to come to the foot of the cross and as we sang last week and sing nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling in the NIV application commentary David Garland comments pride stiffens the knees so they will not bow down and muzzles our voice so that we do not cry out in humble supplication only when we are truly desperate are we willing to do anything it takes including humbling ourselves to find God's help and unless you've ever been there you'll never find God's help are you willing to bow your stiff knee to come in desperation to plead for the salvation that only Jesus can bring D.L. Moody said Jesus sent no one away empty except those who are full of themselves let's pray together